Today on Hearing is Believing. Salvation comes through right teaching, not my interpretation, not your interpretation, not your Jesus or my Jesus, but the Jesus. And the only way we know the Jesus is by studying what he has left us, the Spirit-inspired text of Holy Scripture. Connecting contemporary culture to the timeless truths of God's Word. This is Hearing is Believing. Christmas time is such a time of imagination. I wish that you could have been with us on Christmas morning as my children came downstairs to see an empty tree now filled full of uh, wrapping paper and boxes and bows and uh, all the presents under the tree, and they wondered what was inside of those boxes. Christmas is a time of imagination, and Christmas, it has this effect on us, this, uh, this, this moment of wondering, what is? And it has this effect in way of causing our hearts to fill with wonder, and even the most curmudgeon amongst us, they all feel the weight of Christmas. And one of my favorite moments in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe comes in a chapter entitled, The Spell Begins to Break. Now, I don't want to ruin things for you if you've not read the book, if you've not seen the movie. I commend the books to you over the movie, but anyway, uh, if, I don't want to ruin things, but there's a chapter titled, Magnificently, The Spell Begins to Break. And we enter the scene where Mr. Beaver tells us that the White Witch had made it Always winter and never Christmas. From there, the children come out of hiding to find a sledge and reindeer with bells on their harnesses. But they were far bigger than the witches' reindeer. And they were not white, but brown. And on the sledge sat a person whom everyone knew the moment they set eyes on him. He was a huge man in a bright red robe, bright as hollyberries with a hood that had fur inside and a great white beard that fell like a foamy waterfall over his chest. Everyone knew him. He was so big and so glad and so real that they all became quiet, still. And they felt very glad, but also solemn. I've come at last, said he. She has kept me out for a long time, but I have got in at last. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. And now, said Father Christmas, for your presence. <laughs> in the scene that C.S. Lewis paints, the spell begins to break. Who is it that comes when the spell begins to break? Well, it's Christmas. In the midst of a dark and bleak winter, here's this character jolly old Saint Nick. And what does he come bringing? He comes bringing presents. The beauty of Christmas is that Christ has given us everything we could ever want and all that we'll ever need, summarized in the person of our one Lord, Jesus Christ. And this Jesus comes bringing the greatest gift of all. This Jesus comes bringing eternal Life, All things necessary for you to receive this gift have been accomplished for you. You need only to accept it. You need only to take hold of it by grace 
through faith. Won't you take hold of eternal life today? It's made available to you free and without cost. Let this Christmas be the Christmas that you receive the greatest gift. You see the reason for belief, the foundation of joy, the height of expectation is Jesus. And let this Christmas be the Christmas you receive Jesus' free gift of salvation. Some of you say, well, I've already received that gift of salvation. Well, then let this moment that we're together, this moment be a moment of rejoicing in the gift, listen, that you have received and will receive. Both of those things are true. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we are the having been saved ones. We have been saved. We are being saved. And by God's grace, we will be saved. And so if you have received or if you have yet to receive, to all people within the sound of my voice, the call of the message today is the same. And it's simply this. Believe. Believe. This is the last message in our series, Safe to Shore. And I invite you to take your Bible and join me in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this series has been titled, Safe to Shore, 12 Principles to Keep Your Faith Off the Rocks. And my last message to you is from the last message that Paul has, the next to last message, to Timothy. How fitting is it that our time together comes in a close in Paul's last word to Timothy in 1 Timothy. And it's interesting as executive pastor, I didn't plan this. This wasn't my intentions. I wish I was smart enough to do this. But on Wednesday evenings, I have taken the church through two out of the three pastoral epistles since my time here. It's amazing how the Lord at this moment speaking to me in the midst of my own preaching, telling me that I was made for the pulpit, that I was made for pastoral ministry. And I'm grateful that our Lord agrees where I belong. And so before we get into the text this morning, I want to encourage you with a couple of things. Number one, you can hear the rest of these messages if you'd like by visiting my website, hearingisbelieving.org. You can subscribe to the podcast, and I release a podcast usually on Fridays, For now, maybe it will be more than Friday, but you can catch up with the series if you've missed it by subscribing to the podcast at hearingisbelieving.org. But let me take you to how we got to principle number 12, just as a means of review. Well, we looked at principle number one, and we saw it as true doctrine. From true doctrine, we went into the second principle, which is right practice. And then the third principle was hold firm to the gospel. And so all of these principles are trying to answer the question, how do we make it safe to shore? Principle number four, focus on the mission of God. Principle number five, remember creation. Principle number six, follow the leader. Number seven, delight in fellowship. Number eight, have confidence to press on. Number nine, be disciplined. Number 10, Build Christian community. Number 11, and we heard that one last week, pursue contentment. And this morning, the 12th principle from verses 11 through 21, principle number 12, take hold of eternal life. 
And so why the name of the series? Well, what we've been trying to do, what I've been trying to do, is I've been looking at chapter 1 in verses 18 through 20 as a solemn warning to Timothy. And Paul's warning to his young protege is not to be named amongst those who have made shipwreck of their faith. And so to arrive safe to shore, Paul instructs Timothy on the ways of the Lord. So would you join with me in reading the holy text this morning? 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll begin our reading at verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They ought to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you all. Would you pray with me this morning? Thank you, our Father, for the text. And in the text that is Spirit-inspired, we see your Son and learn to love you more and more. Thank you, Father, for giving us the Son. Thank you for giving us the Spirit. And thank you that your Word reveals who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. And so may we this morning delight in the God who is through this moment of exposition as we take your text dig truths from it and ask you to do your work and apply it to every portion of our lives in the name of the Son and the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father Amen so here at the last at the last letter to Timothy 
And the last, at the end of the last letter to Timothy, you and I are going to encounter, or we have encountered, many of the same repeated themes that we saw in the beginning of the letter. And all of those repeated references, what they do, they hinge upon a single emphasis. And the single emphasis that they all hinge upon is true teaching. True teaching. Look at this. For example, look at what it says here in verse 21. Some have swerved from the faith. That's a, that's a word that is a, is a word full of imagery. Swerving from the faith. Well, that takes us all the way back to what we saw in, verses, in, verse, um, in verse 19, where it said, some have made shipwreck of their faith. In other words, these individuals have drifted off course. And so it all hinges, Paul's intention to write to Timothy hinges on a single emphasis. And that single emphasis is true or right teaching. And so churches and Christians, this is a warning for us. If we're not careful, we can drift off course. We can drift off course. And so the man entrusted as a watchman is Paul's protege. It's this young Timothy. And thanks be to God that the same warning that Paul left to Timothy has been gifted to us by the Spirit. The church has received this message from the Lord, from the hand of Paul, so that we can have an army of Timothys, those who are guarding the good deposit entrusted to them, and that's us. The name Timothy literally means Timo, which means honoring Theos, God, Timotheus. All of us are Timotheus. We're all those who are to live up to that name of honoring God because a good deposit has been entrusted to us. We are those who by faith have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And now that we've tasted and seen, now we have the opportunity and the responsibility and the obligation to go and tell. So we want to, Timotheus, we want to honor God. We want to serve as the watchman of our own hearts, the watchman in our own societies, the watchman in our families, so that we are guarding what has been entrusted to us. But notice the language here. Look at, look at verse 11. O man of God. And then look at verse 12. Fight the good fight. And then look at verse 14. Keep the commandments. All of those references, every one of them, begin to set a distance between Timothy and the false teachers. Timothy is to keep his hope set, as he said earlier, on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Timothy, according to what he has commended earlier in the, in the letter, he is to keep a close watch on himself and on the teaching, not his teaching, but the teaching. He is to persist in this, with this solemn warning. For so by doing, he will save both himself and those who listen to him. No pressure, Timothy, but get it right. As he would tell him in his second epistle, study to show yourself approved unto God. Workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. Workman who doesn't need to shrink back, rightly dividing, cutting the cloth straight, the cloth of the Word of God. And so salvation comes through right teaching. Don't miss that. Salvation comes through right teaching, not 
my interpretation, not your interpretation, not your Jesus or my Jesus, but the Jesus. And the only way we know the Jesus is by studying what He has left us, the Spirit-inspired text of Holy Scripture, who stands, the text stands above us. We don't stand above it. Salvation comes through right teaching. So what is the substance of true teaching? Or we should ask it another way. Not what is the substance of true teaching. Who is the subject of true teaching? Do this with me. In chapter 1 in verse 3, there's a Greek word that's only used twice in the New Testament. And both references are in Timothy. In chapter 1 and verse 3, my Bible says different Doctrine. That's where we get the word in our English. That's where we get the word heterodoxy. Heterodoxy. And we encounter that word again in chapter 6 and verse 3. The only two times it's mentioned in the New Testament is two references that Paul gives to Timothy. And so in 1-3, different doctrine. In 6-3, different doctrine. And after both of those references, listen... After both of those references to heterodoxy is a doxology. And what's a doxology? Doxa means praise. Of course, ology is teaching. And so what is the teaching that is worthy of praise? Or we should say, what is the one or who is the one who is the substance of praiseworthy teaching? So do this for me. Go back to chapter 1. And after verse 3, here comes the doxology in verse 17. Look at verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that amen there, that's a cue to you and I that this is a doxology. Now flip on over to chapter 6 and look at verse uh, uh, 15, the latter part of verse 15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Look at this. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. And then here's our cue again. Amen. So the point that I want to hit home with you today, and it's not just my point, it's the point of Timothy, is the difference between true teaching and false teaching is Jesus. And then look again in chapter 3. We have this, this poem that holds Timothy together. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The difference is Jesus. Jesus is the difference. And there again, it's not my Jesus. It's not your Jesus. Though hopefully my Jesus and your Jesus is the Jesus, but not necessarily. True teaching is what leads to salvation. And the only way you know if you get Jesus right or not is not by looking at a picture or portrait or listening to necessarily what your grandmother said about Jesus. It's by you encountering the living Word through the inspired Word. You'll always get it right when you humbly submit yourself to Him and forget your preconceived notions, but encounter the Jesus of the Bible. 
He is the difference. He is the difference between life and death, between eternity with God and eternity separated from God. Jesus is the difference between hope and hopelessness, between truth and error. And since He is the difference, since in Him is life, we understand the responsibility that we have to both know Him and to make Him known. To know Him and to make Him known. Jesus is the difference. And He invites you today to take hold of Him. To take hold of eternal life. One of my favorite theologians, a man by the name of Irenaeus, who lived in the first century, he said, or the second century, he said, we do not cease from loving God, but in proportion, as we continue to contemplate Him, so much do we love Him. For we do not cease from loving God, but in proportion as we continue to contemplate Him, so much do we love Him. In other words, the more you consider Jesus, the sweeter your consideration will be. And it's my prayer today that if you don't already have one, that God will give you an insatiable appetite to know Him and to make Him known. No other, no other substitute will satisfy you other than Jesus. Knowing Him and making Him known. I'm reminded of a story of my grandmother. My grandmother could hardly read, had nothing more than a sixth grade education. And for those of you who have a King James Bible, you've all been told that it takes a 12th grade education to really get a good grasp of the understanding of the King's English. But I remember spending the night, Christmas time was one of my grandmother's most favorite times, and I remember spending the night at my grandmother's house, and there she was in her bed with her glasses, reading glasses on her nose, and her Bible open. And I'll never forget asking her one time, Mama, how often, how many times have you read your Bible? And she dropped the Bible down to her knees and she said, Honey, I don't know. The more you consider this Jesus, the more you will love Him. And so three truths today, three truths, three truths as we take hold of eternal life. Number one, write these down. Number one, remember your confession. Remember your confession. Verse 11 begins with a startling contrast between the ministry of Paul, a ministry of Timothy, and the ministry of the false teacher. Look at what Paul calls Timothy. He calls him, look at that phrase there, O man of God. Paul calls Timothy man of God. By using this phrase, Paul sets the ministry of Timothy in congruence with the faithful servants of God throughout the ages. Moses had the title ascribed to him, man of God. Samuel had the title, man of God. David was called man of God. Elijah was called man of God. Elisha was called man of God. And now Timothy 
is called man of God. When I served at First Baptist Atlanta, I had a friend named Paul who in so many ways was really a Paul to this Timothy. When I served there, he gave me a painting to celebrate my time served there. The painting was called The Legacy by Ron DeCiani. And the painting shows a preacher behind a pulpit surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Jesus is there. John the Baptist is there. Peter, Elijah, Elisha. And then you'll notice two angels, two angels with fiery torches as the preacher holds up his Bible, standing behind the pulpit and proclaims. Paul presented that painting to me to remind this Timothy that exactly what that Paul reminded this Timothy here. The ministry that should make up my preoccupation should be this legacy of faithful gospel proclamation. The ministry, what you should spend your time doing, what we together collectively should spend our time doing is knowing Him and making Him known. You may not have a platform like this. Your platform may be more subtle and with some cases greater effect. As you kneel down beside your children at night, as you serve food to the least of these, as you cut the meat of that child that God has entrusted you with. What should preoccupy you is to know Him and to make Him known. Notice the details of this legacy. There is first a direction. Look at the text. Flee these things. Flee what things? Flee those things that pull us down. Look at what all what came before for the most immediate context of those things. And what came before? What came before is the pursuit of self. The pursuit of self-aggrandizing. Pursuing self. Paul says, flee that. Forget that. Don't be in pursuit of self. How subtle it is that those who minister on behalf of others in the name of Jesus can confuse these things. How subtle it is. A double-edged sword. This thing called ministry becomes. And so here I am, literally, standing in an elevated position over you. You're all quiet. You're listening to what I say. And so here I am, standing over you. And no wonder so many teachers confuse things and they begin to think that ministry is about them. You get this when preachers, instead of preaching the text, they preach what Adrian Rogers used to call skyscraper sermons. It's just story after story after story after story. And it doesn't encourage you to consider the Christ of the text. Always preach Christ. Lift the Son and see others drawn to Him. Paul would say in another place that we are to present everyone mature in Christ, to Christ, for Christ. It is Him we proclaim. Not ourselves, but Him. 
Some say that you need to live up to your preaching, to which I say, if I'm living up to my preaching, then I'm not preaching high enough. It's Jesus. Jesus. Jesus makes all the difference. The danger of preaching ourselves is that self becomes primary and the gospel becomes secondary. But remember this. The gospel is primarily about denying self. It's about denying yourself. And if we proclaim ourselves, it's as simple as this. If we proclaim ourselves, then we are not proclaiming Him. He is far too great, far too excellent. His name is far too wonderful to ever be confused as a second. If we are not proclaiming Him, then it's as simple as this. We are not gospel proclaimers. And the world needs us to be gospel proclaimers. Your family needs you to be gospel proclaimers. Your children need you to be gospel proclaimers. As the author of Hebrews says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, let go of those things. Let go of yourself and pursue, look at the text, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, Steadfastness, gentleness. You know what those things are? Those things are the fruit that ensures that we're on the right road of Christian proclamation. And the end of that road is eternal life. Not only do we have a direction, we have, letter B, a determination. Look at verse 12 fight the good fight. And listen to the preacher carefully this morning. It's so easy to slip off in those, those little bits of life that are Turkish delight, that temporarily satisfy. But remember that the Christian life is marked with a cross. Remember that the cross means denying self. It means presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. But as one preacher said, the problem with living sacrifices is they tend to keep crawling off the altar. There is little room in your Christian life. And if you've been confused by this or snoozing into this or just coasting by, remember, look at the language. Fight the good fight. There is little room for this kumbaya by and by. The cause is too great. Time is too short. The world needs us to be all that we can be for King Jesus because one day He's coming and He Himself is worthy. There's little room for kumbaya by and by. Instead, the call for the Christian is to wage the good warfare for you and I to take up the whole armor of God and to stand against the world as we stand for the world. We're both against the world at the same time, we are for the world. We fight against the flesh. We fight against the devil. We have to have a determination to fight the good fight of the faith. 
There's a direction. There's a determination. And let her see there is a destiny. A destiny set by our confession. Look at the text. Take hold of eternal life. And that's an aggressive word. Again, you can see the image in your mind. Grab it. Seize it. Take hold of eternal life. Now you and I know that we can't earn eternal life, but eternal life is ours for the taking. All on account of what Christ has accomplished for us. Take it. Just take it. Reach out and take it. Eternal life comes to us by our confession. And as we were, as we learned in the first section, so it's repeated here, take it by the hands. Take what's in your mind. Take it by the hands. Take what's in your heart by the hands. Eternal life is there for us to see. What we believe determines how we behave. Eternal life is there for us to seize. We walk the road of faith. We look through eyes of faith. We use our hands to portray to others the hope of our faith. Our words, our deeds are consistent with Christian confession. And listen, Christian confession, it starts at one moment, but it continues through every moment. We first believed and we continue in what we believe. Always confessing Christ with each new experience. Every opportunity that you have, you're going to go out in just a few moments and you're going to have an opportunity to confess Christ. Out in the world, you're going to have an opportunity to confess Christ. You say, well, how long do we have to confess Christ? Look at verse 14. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, what if I'm not alive when He comes? Listen to the preacher this morning. Our confession, your confession, is to outlive you. If you're faithful to Jesus, then your confession should outlive you. You and I should desire our private lives to match our public confession. And we need to learn this lesson clear that what is done in the dark will eventually become evident. And so long after we're gone, we should hope until Jesus comes that our lives still have the aroma of Christian confession without any stench of ourselves. Notice this phrase also in verse 14. Keep the commandment. What commandment? Only one commandment comes to my mind, and that's the command of love. Love who? Love God and love neighbor. And the greatest act of love we can share is to tell our neighbors about Jesus. Isn't that exactly what Paul is doing? Go back to chapter 1 and verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love. Why is he writing? Because he loves The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Our confession is a confession of love. Number two, the second truth, if we're going to take hold of eternal life, number two, resist hoping in uncertainty. Look at what Paul does in verse 17. He turns his attention back again to those who are most prone to forget the eternal realities that Christ has brought near. And who are they? They're named. They're the rich. 
He develops this theme that he started in verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving. Don't miss this. It's through this craving that some have done what? They've wandered away. They're off course. Wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And to avoid the piercing, Paul encourages the rich to set their hope on certainty. And what is certain is not the riches that come and go, but a Jesus who is coming again. And the second coming of Jesus, I hope that you believe this this morning, is more certain than the sun coming up or going down. Number three, if we're going to take hold of eternal life, and this is by far the most important, number three, remain in grace. Remain in grace. Look at this. Paul ends things the same way he began. Look at the last phrase in 21. Grace be with you all. The Christian life is all of grace. Grace is the assurance of perseverance. Grace is the assurance of perseverance. Why do we keep on going? Only one word will do. Grace. We don't shrink back. Instead, we keep going. We keep pressing on. It's all for Jesus. It's all on account of grace. I love the way the author of Hebrews, he says this in chapter 10. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For the Bible says, for yet a little while, and the coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous ones shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, if he shrinks back, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And the Bible continues with the next word. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are those who have faith and persevere their souls. Why are we not those that shrink back? Grace. Grace. Grace is the only guarantee that your soul will make it safe to shore. Grace invites you to bring all of your insufficiencies to His sufficiency. Grace invites you to bring all of your incapabilities to everything that He can do. And you say, what can He do? He can cause the lame to walk. He can cause blinded eyes to see. He can calm a raging storm with just a word. He can raise the dead. He can create a universe out of nothing. He speaks and it comes. 
Grace reminds us that we need Him more today than yesterday. And listen, you will need Him more tomorrow still. It is only grace that can cause you to arrive safe to shore. The grace of God is your only hope. And thankfully, He offers it abundantly and free. But you have to take hold of it. You have to, by faith, believe. Do you believe? You see, if we believe, then we will say with the song, "'Twas grace that brought me safe thus far." And grace will lead me home. Thank you, God, for amazing grace. May it ever sound sweet the more we consider it to our ears. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to Hearing is Believing. For more information or to contact us, please visit hearingisbelieving.org.